today on the Tearsheet Podcast. My goal is to be dollar for dollar the most kind of compelling and helpful investor through the first, call it 12, 18, 24 months of a company's history. Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Tearsheet's Editor-in-Chief, Zach Miller. I like talking to investors in financial services and fintech. I find that their perspectives, particularly around trends and big picture moves, are helpful in understanding what's going on. Today's guest is Rex Salisbury, entrepreneur, investor, and builder. He recently left Andreessen Horowitz to return to his roots, building networks of fintech founders and helping them with connections and expertise. He also recently launched a $20 million fund and has made nine investments so far. I spoke to Rex about his background as a community builder and the impact that has on companies he invests in. We talk about his time at A16Z, which saw massive growth in the team and the space. Rex shares why he looks to invest in deep, boring, and broken spaces in the financial technology stack, and why fintech at the intersection of something is a good investment strategy. Our broad-reaching talk spans mortgage software, the fintech community meetups in San Francisco, to big tech's interest in financial services. Rex Salisbury is my guest today on the Tearsheet Podcast. So I'm Rex Salisbury, the founder of Cambrian Ventures, a fintech fund that I founded and am the solo GP for in January of this year. We focus on pre-seed investing in companies with U.S. go-to-markets. And again, it's we, but it's actually just me on the investing side. <laughs> so, so let's talk about that. You, 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 yeah. you came from A16Z. You had, a, you had a huge investment team, probably one of the most prolific and best investors in the space. You launched a solo fund. Can we talk maybe about, about that decision? Yeah, absolutely. So my story, um, I kind of accidentally ended up in venture capital uh, just because I was super passionate about the space. So the like long version told quickly is that I did investment banking, uh, learned a lot, hated it, moved to the West Coast, uh, taught myself to code, ended up joining one of the co-founders of SoFi on their new company, Syndio. And I was leading back-end engineering efforts, kind of building out an automated online mortgage pre-approval. So think like rocket mortgage, push button, get mortgage, kind of the back end for that. It's like, oh, this is really cool. This is circa 2015 in FinTech, right? In San Francisco. I was like, this is really cool. I'm building software in this really kind of cruddy back corner infrastructure of like the financial mortgage just for market mortgages. Oh, by the way, mortgage is like the largest consumer mortgages in the US is like the largest debt class in the world. There's over 10 trillion. I think maybe now it's even 10 trillion at the time. I think now it's about $15 trillion in mortgages outstanding in the US. So it's like, oh, this is like, this is how the back end for the world's largest asset class operates. Like this is crazy, right? And so I'm the word cruddy. Was that specific? Yeah. There's just like, you know, you've got like my very first thing that I did is it's like we had to translate our data model into MISMO, which is the mortgage it's the standard data interchange format for mortgage. It's like mortgage interchange, something, something. And you get your API docs uh, and it's just a static PDF that says like version 1.8 dated 2003. Wow. <laughs> and it's like an XML reference. You're like, that's, that's the like guide <laughs> is for <laughs> like the, the data interchange format for mortgage is this static PDF that's like 10 years old. Wow. Uh, it's like, whoa. So that's like how financial tech good intro works, yeah good intro right? to the industry yeah. um and then i was like oh shit we uh we screwed up our data model because we didn't like build it with all the kind of concepts of mismo in mind so anyways that was my kind of introduction into like 
here's the infrastructure underpinning one aspect of financial services. I'm in San Francisco at the time. Um, I'm like, I want to talk to other people who are having very similar experiences where they're building something in financial services. Maybe it's in payments, maybe it's in insurance. I just want to hear about their experiences because um, this is like a cool place with cool people doing cool things. And so that was the birth of kind of Cambrian, the community that led me down this path to like accidentally becoming a venture capitalist. So I just started doing small monthly events in downtown San Francisco. So like our very first event, I had my team from Cindio demoing the mortgage pre-approval product we built. We also hmm. had the team from Plaid demoing the Plaid API. And then we had a team built, demoing an app that they built on top of Plaid. So that was again, circa 2015, very first event. But then San Francisco is this highly networked place with a bunch of interesting people doing interesting work. And so Cambrian, the community just continued to grow from there. The point we were running monthly events over the course of several years in San Francisco and in New York, doing mm -hmm. biannual summits, quarterly jobs fairs, uh, biannual co-founder matching, had over 15,000 newsletter subscribers, 5,000 meetup members. I also now run a Slack community that has 1,500 plus fintech founders in it, which makes it one of the largest gatherings in a digital context of fintech founders that I'm aware of uh, anywhere. So that was kind of the growth of Cambria in the community. And then, as you can imagine, that started pulling me into investing and advising and working with early stage companies. And I actually quit my day job not to go work at Andreessen Horowitz and join their fintech practice, but to go full time on Cambrian the community and raise a small fund. Um, and I was just a couple of weeks into that when the Andreessen Horowitz team, who I got to know through Cambrian the community, reached out and was like, hey, we love everything you've done, right? Like you're clearly passionate about the space. You understand financial markets from your time in investment banking. You understand software engineering, specifically within the context of financial services from your time as a software engineer. And you know how to like build community, marshal resources, navigate networks, be supportive of entrepreneurs, all of that. So they pitched me on joining them as the first um, partner hired externally to help start their fintech vertical. And this might sound kind of crazy, because A16Z is now such a huge presence in the ecosystem. They're going to end 2022, by the way, at about 500 people. When I joined, they were about 100 folks, a little bit more than that. And that was already kind of crazy in terms of size. Mm -hmm. But the fintech practice was really just one person joined by another general partner who'd been promoted internally. Then someone else brought in from another team. Uh, internally, and then I was brought on externally. And so now all of a sudden you have like a team of four people. And then very quickly from there, after I was brought on, that was the the kind of point in time where it's like, okay, let's really build out the practice. So immediately hired two other partners and have since grown the investing team alone to over 10 folks. And then I've also grown out kind of the vertical operating side of the house. So anyways, that is to say, you know, went from community to kind of accidentally, to some extent, you know, planning to launch my own fund. Uh, to end helping start the fintech vertical at A16Z, focus primarily on investing to investing in companies like Deal and Tally, also help start our fintech newsletter, um, to staying just over two years and saying like, look, what I really want to do is go back to focusing exclusively on the very early stage, um, because that's where I'm kind of most differentiated and where my networks are most helpful mm -hmm. and help companies get off the ground. So Cambrian Ventures, $20 million fund, I usually write a 500K initial check and then as LPs in the fund, I have 20 plus of the top founders in the space, founders from SoFi, um, Betterment, Blend, Plaid, the list goes on. And my goal is to provide kind of access to highly relevant networks at the earliest stage of a company's journey. And by writing a small check, you know, small as in non-lead check, I can be very collaborative with others in the ecosystem. So I can help bring together that round 
for entrepreneurs. I can also help with subsequent rounds. And then I can also leverage all the networks and relationships I've kind of built through Cambrian, the community over the last six or seven years. So that's kind of my like origin story, so to speak, as well as kind of the, the idea of the fund. Um, that's an yeah, awesome that's story. That's a lot of me talking, Zach. So hopefully no, that's, that's great. Good. <laughs> I'm, we're here to talk <laughs> about overview. you and to talk about Cambrian. But yeah. I guess one thing I hear from you, Rex, is like, you are a you're a startup person at heart. You're a community person at heart. Content person at heart. Um, the investing sort of seems like a way to to monetize some of that experience. Like, and it sounds like as an as as a full time investor, like A16Z, maybe those roles were flipped upside down. I don't know. I don't. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But what what was it like um, branching out? At you know. You had this interlude of, of Andreessen Horowitz in there coming back to Cambrian. What, what was like? What were those? Were you coming back to something? Like, do you feel like it was coming back to your roots or something? Yeah, I feel like this is definitely the more natural way in which I operate, where I'm kind of in the liminal space between firms and between companies. And as a result of that, when you're in these kind of liminal areas, you're better able to facilitate connectivity. So to give you one example of why that looks like and why I feel kind of more at home now than I did inside of a big firm, um, when you're at a big firm, you're fighting to lead rounds, right? And sometimes you're going out on a limb, you're making an investment in a company that most other people think isn't that interesting, right? You're making a non-consensus bet. But the reality and kind of the, the dirty secret of a lot of multi-stage large venture firms is that they do a lot of consensus-oriented investing. Sure. Because even if they try and make a non-consensus bet, other people figure out- They move markets. That they're going yeah. to do it, right? They move the market and it becomes yeah. consensus. <laughs> so it's both like you yourself are attracted to doing deals that are consensus because you know other people are interested in them, you find out about them. And then even if you try and do something non-consensus, you, you kind of move the market, you make I it consensus. That. And so what that means is you end up being very, you end up being hyper-competitive with everyone in the ecosystem, the other investors, et cetera. And you aren't able to talk with other um, players in the oh. ecosystem, whether that's other founders or other investors. And then because you can't necessarily exchange information in the same ways, you're not actually able to be helpful and supportive of portfolio companies in the same way, right? And so, but if you're independent and you're a non-lead investor, you can talk to lots of folks, right? And therefore you can learn lots of things that are relevant and helpful. So to give you like one material example for what this looks like from a portfolio company perspective, if you have a multi-stage firm lead your seed, they're going to take up a lot of the round. They're going to squeeze out a lot of other angels and small-scale investors. Uh, and they're probably going to squeeze out other seed stage firms. And now when you go out to raise your next round, it's not really in their own interest to promote you to yeah. other multi-stage firms, right? And not only is it not in their interest, even if they like, were like, look, we'll still do like everything, it's kind of a weird signaling thing. Because <laughs> if you go out and you're A16Z and you say, hey, other firm, you want to invest in my company? It's like- Why are you asking me? Why are you asking, right? <laughs> so, but for someone like me, if curse. I'm alongside a multi-stage firm, like whether it's my former colleagues or another place- mm -hmm. I am highly incentivized and also well-positioned to be able to go out, have a lot of those conversations, help you identify who the other great investing partner might be, help kind of prepare their mind to help accelerate your process with them. And that just works a lot, lot better than if you just have a multi-stage firm who like has these kind of weird incentives as, we are, as well as weird incentives. Uh, uh, Weird incentives as well as just weird um, 
signaling risk associated if they do go on push investment. So that's like one material way in which kind of having different kind of parties around the table very early on in a company's life can can really matter quite a bit. Yeah, it kind of it sounds like you joining um, a cap table is almost as a utility player. You can work alongside everybody. You bring value through your connections right away, and uh, and you're not competitive against anybody on the deal. Yeah, that's my goal is to be dollar for dollar the most kind of compelling and helpful investor through the first, call it 12, 18, 24 months of a company's history, right? And then, and this is another reason why I ended up leaving A16Z, which I loved. I love the people there. I love the team. I had a great experience, um, is if you're at a multi-stage firm, you usually make large investments. You usually end up taking board seats. And so what that means is if you're doing, call it three, four investments a year, you end up on a whole bunch of boards, which is great. Like that's one incredibly important role an investor can play in supporting a company for a decade or more. Right. What that means to you as an investor is that quarterly board meetings stack up pretty quickly. Yeah. And so after just a few years of investing, you're, quote, boarded up. And what that means is you are now less able to spend time supporting your new portfolio companies. Um, and you quickly are kind of out of the market and you're not able to kind of maintain relationships within the, the network. So my goal, instead of getting boarded up, is to be very involved in kind of the first two years of a company's life, help them both in the round I'm in, the subsequent round. That's one of the big areas I help out is like fundraising, but I also help out with other things like finding customers, first hires, advisors, a lot of the founders and the who are uh, investors in my fund end up co-investing in some of the startups, mutual opt-in, but it's just something that naturally ends up happening. Um, and so my ability to basically go out and prov provide this bridge between these two ecosystems is super helpful. But if I'm serving on 10, 15 boards, very quickly, you end up out of that area. Um, and so that's another reason why I often encourage folks to take, take money from like, you know, seed stage specialists is that these folks can be very helpful for a certain period in the company's life. Then you get to the Series B, you've got an executive team, you've, you should have some semblance of product market fit right. and repeatability in your go-to-market motion. Uh, you have a few great board members. Having someone like me, I can still be helpful in some sense, but you've got a lot more support at that point. So you don't really need the same kind of uh, engagement or involvement. I'd love to switch gears and talk about the types of companies that you invest in uh, and maybe through that lens, look at some of the trends that you're seeing, things that you're interested in. Yeah, totally. So I think the most exciting thing uh, in fintech is both very obvious, but bears repeating. And that is that there is more talent in the ecosystem than ever before. Um, and that's coupled with a market where digital penetration is basically in the single you know, percentage points in almost any vertical that you look at. So what that means is there's better talent than ever before. And the market opportunity is literally as big as it's ever been. So to make that material, like imagine you're John Stein at Betterment or Ken Lin at Credit Karma. You're starting mm -hmm. a company in the middle of the Great Recession. And your company is a fintech company. Well, first of all, like, what is a fintech company? Right. There is no category, right? Like, that Where do we put you? We weren't even making fun of whether or not fintech was a category until like 2013 or right. 14 or 15. Uh, so you're like, you're pre, way pre that. And then you've got a couple of questions. You're like, uh, okay, so how do I build this? There isn't a whole bunch of infrastructure you can use. So they're really important questions about how do you build this? Um, Shamir Karkal, who's another um, investor in our fund, 
one of the founders of the original one of the original neobanks, Simple. It took mm-hmm. him over two years to find a banking partner. Wow. Right? Really hard to figure out how do you actually build this? Uh, and then three is like, who do you hire? It's like, where do you go to convince other crazy people that you're building something that's interesting when you're not even sure exactly necessarily how you're going to build it or what the product market fit is going to be? Oh, by the way, how are you going to raise money for this thing? There, there's like QED and Ribbit, but they're both kind of new and, and smaller firms at the time. So there isn't just a ready pool of capital to go and raise from. So it's really hard getting started. You fast forward to today, there are between 30,000, depending on what list and you know, kind of criteria you want to use, 30,000 and 100,000 employees just in the US working at fintech companies, right? You drill down into that. That means that you have a bunch of founders who are potentially even repeat founders within the fintech ecosystem, as well as operators who have been serial operators within fintech. So really great talent. And then the next question is, okay, well, how do you build it? Well, now your problem is actually, which of the 20 banking as a service providers do I want to use? Which of the 40 partner banks do I want to use? Which of the virtual card issuers do I want to stand this up on? So you actually have really great talent. You have a ton of tools. The market is the same size. The talent, it's not just about being able to recruit people. It's also about having insights into what the opportunities are. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can think about someone like, you know, this is an imperfect and overly simple metaphor, but someone like Simple Bank is kind of reskinning the existing bank stack, right? And just putting a digital front end on it. After you've built digital front ends for six, seven, eight years, and some of these companies have scaled, people have learned what is broken on the back end. And so now this kind of leads to the investing themes, right? So the first and most obvious is I want to back really great people with great, great pedigree, great experiences, kind of earned secrets into the ecosystem. And then the second thing is I, I get more excited when that experience translates into something that's deep and boring and broken within the existing financial stack. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> deep, boring, broken. What, what would be an example be. of that? Deep, boring, and broken. Yeah, I got, this is where the exempt. So I've done uh, nine investments out of the fund so far. Only two of them are not in stealth. Um, and so I have to think through which ones. Oh, I that can, makes it challenging to talk about the portfolio. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. Uh, th- that a lot of the companies are, you know, starting to come out of stealth doing their public announcements. So soon it'll be easier to, to talk about it. But um, I think maybe to start through, we could talk through just the two investments that aren't in stealth right now. Um, so the first one I think really amplifies like just a really strong founding team. So this is Keep Financial. What do they do? They are a bonus management platform for large employers. What does that mean? Let's say this is an illustrative example. This is not a real customer. Let's say you're Burger King. You want to issue 10,000 signing bonuses to frontline workers of $5,000 each. Keep will help you run a program to do that. And then under the hood, it's actually structured as a forgivable loan, which gives you some nice affordances in terms of how you can actually run that program and make sure after you give people the signing bonus, they don't just walk away on the second day. Um, we live in a very tight labor market, so it's incredibly important to think about other tools in your toolkit that you might have yeah. to be able to attract talent and retain talent. Uh, I love the pitch of the company because the idea is basically, how do you get people to like want to work for you? It's like, well, what if you paid them money? <laughs> um, and of course, you have salary, but for a lot of people in frontline service jobs who are living at or near the poverty line, uh, having access to a large lump sum of cash up front is incredibly compelling, even beyond uh, a regular salary. So that's what the company does. The company is founded by Rob and Catherine. They are the ex-founders of Cabbage, Cabbage. which is a oh, yeah. small business lender. Exactly. 
Um, so really great team, kind of very charismatic, compelling, interesting, deep understanding of, you know, the plumbing, like how do you actually build a loan system? Like they understand that for their days um, at Cabbage. And then they had this kind of novel insight into what the product looked like. So this isn't a deep born and broken thing so much as just a novel application of fintech into a new sector. And I would say that is a new, another kind of adjacent theme besides like mm-hmm. the deep born and broken would be the kind of fintech at the intersection of something else. So this would be fintech at the intersection of HR tech, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one really interesting company doing some really interesting work. Um, the other company uh, is called OakFi. They're doing embedded lending for small businesses. Um, this Small business payments, huge space. Um, trillions of payments volumes, huge amounts are still done via check. And as everyone knows, small businesses live and die by their cash flow. But if you're trying to access anything less than called a $200,000 or maybe even half a million dollar um, line of credit, it's very slow and cumbersome to go to a bank, right? Mm-hmm. And so instead, you need to have the provision of credit provided kind of in your daily daily existence and make it very seamless to get. So what OPFI does is they partner with platforms that allow small businesses to send invoices. Those platforms could be horizontal platforms. Again, illustrative example, not an actual customer, but like bill.com, if they wanted to offer an embedded lending um, to anyone on their platform, they could use someone like OPFI to power that. Um, But similarly, that's a horizontal solution. Imagine you're a vertical solution. You're like, I let you, I'm a vertical software platform. Like I'm the operating system for hair salons, right? To use an example that a lot of investors like to use. Well, now let's say you're interacting with some of your suppliers um, who are providing like the products that you then sell mm-hmm. through, through your storefront, through your hair salon. OFI can embed into, you know, maybe it's a wholesale platform that has like an actual checkout experience. They could embed into that checkout experience and offer kind of a B2B buy now, pay later. Right, right at checkout, very similar to the consumer experience. Or let's say it's like not kind of a full wholesale kind of you know Shopify esque experience. It's more of just an invoicing platform. They could go and put that button on an invoice. So again, both the hair salon could delay payment, but also the person selling to the hair salon who might already sell on some sort of net terms could accelerate payment of that invoice. And so this is one of those areas where we've seen how important like buy now pay later is in the consumer sector. It's just as important for small businesses to have arguably even more so, um, or more so in the sense that there's, you know, larger dollar volumes uh, moving around. Uh, it's just as important for small businesses to have access to control over their cash flow as well. And so this is a really huge um, opportunity. And what's cool about OPFI is as the ecosystem has grown, there's so many different new vertical software solutions, right? The software that helps you run your your hair salon or whatever other kind of small business you might have so many more different kind of horizontal solutions. So if you're a, a business, a business neobank and you have a bill pay or an invoicing solution, that's kind of bolt on product. You could also partner with someone like an OFI, or if you have a secured charge card and you need someone to provide the advances against that card, there's just so many areas where you can embed the provision of credit for businesses. I think it's also a very compelling investment from, uh, you know, an, an investor's viewpoint, because compared to consumer buy now, pay later, they're higher volumes, they're more complex um, flow of funds. There's even higher degrees of repeatability 
Um, so you underwrite someone once, can lend to them again, like the same hair salon might order many, many times from the same wholesaler. So there's a lot of stuff from an investment standpoint that actually make this as or more compelling um, than the consumer uh, analog, and then arguably more defensible as well, right? It's a more complex product to integrate with, uh, and therefore it's harder to end up kind of positioned against all the other players in the space. So those are two of the examples. One of fintech at the intersection of something else, the other kind of being more of a deep, boring, broken uh, example, uh, kind of the so, next evolution of like consumer BMPL, but for P2B. What is deep, boring, and broken in in uh, in SMB finance? So I think there it's it's definitely more boring, right? Like it's harder for people to understand why and what SMB credit looks like. There are a lot of small business owners, but most Americans are are still not. Um, what's broken is that. If you want to go to a bank and try and get that same line of credit, right, they're going to charge you a high interest rate. They're going to take two, three months uh, to actually be able to lend to you. And then they also, there's a very high likelihood they will tell you no. <laughs> so um, there's like all of these problems with actually just getting the credit. And even if you get the credit, like just the time, energy, and effort required to get that credit, it's like I could have invested instead in opening a new store or building out a new product. And so that has a very, very high opportunity cost. Um, and then some of the other stuff, and unfortunately these companies are all in stealth, is really about like more financial infrastructure things that mm -hmm. are like even more boring and kind of <laughs> nerdy. That's really like um, in the in the bowels of the of yeah, the, it's the, like more the just financial pure tech software tech. oriented uh -huh. things. Um, but there's there's another like that's another set of conversations. Um, I will say maybe this is an interesting um, jumping off point, which especially will come as no surprise to many of the banking executives who are in your audience. But the idea of software sold into banks, mm -hmm. um, a lot of the software there is very old. Everyone likes to say like, oh, ha, 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 it's all COBOL, which is still true. Um, there's a great stat too on the growth of MIPS. So uh, what does it stand for? It's like, uh, do you remember what the MIPS acronym stands for? In I don't frame? remember. It's basically no. a uh, measurement of data flowing into mainframes. And so you would think like, oh, as we get farther and farther along, like the data processing volumes of mainframes, it's like, no, turns out every time you log in on your smartphone, that usually triggers a call that eventually triggers a call to like a core system. So the growth of mobile banking has actually meant that you have more frequent interactions with your core banking software, which means you've actually seen an increase in processing volumes by uh, like old COBOL system, which means there's actually a growing market still to this day. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, wild. Who would to think look that at mobile it. banking would drive like a growth in, in like mainframe, mainframe compute? Yeah. And it does. <laughs> right? Wow. And <laughs> like, that's kind of silly. Um, and now a lot, the reality is like, is that still happening at the big five banks? Uh, I don't know. I know a couple of years ago, it still was maybe mm -hmm. it's kind of expensive because a lot of their uh, infrastructure costs are based on that. And so you'd want to reduce it and figure out ways of building in redundancies or caching or, you know, whoever else, whatever else. But that's an example of like, wow, the banking stack is just not built for the modern digital era of real-time 24-7 connectivity. And so there's an opportunity to rebuild all of the software that banks run on. A few years ago, the idea of selling software into banks was kind of unsexy. It's like, why would you sell software to banks? they're all going to die and go out of business, <laughs> right? Um, that's a bad market. And now it's like, oh, like banks are real. They're like, they're not going anywhere anytime soon. 
maybe there will be very large material aspects of their business that are carved off and done by new challengers. And I, I definitely mm-hmm. very much believe that to be the case. Mm-hmm. But I think there will also be very large markets in which they operate for a very long period of time, and it can make sense to sell into them. And then I think what's interesting about this area of bank software from an investment perspective is it actually has performed very well in the public markets recently, because guess what? These are three-year enterprise contracts with usually 80% gross margins, Yep. as opposed to, let's say you're like a Coinbase, which has a bunch of retail consumers who are momentum-driven. And so Coinbase, you know, has collapsed in terms of its market cap from a peak of about 100 billion to, I don't know where they're trading, probably 10 or less today. And then if you look at one of their, it's not a competitor, but someone in a similar space, Chainalysis, which provides AML software sold into banks to monitor for money laundering that happens on chain. And they sell into banks, governments, other agencies, pure software, right? Yeah, full market for that stuff. Yeah, who would have thought three or four years ago that that company selling software to banks in the blockchain space would actually be nearly as big as the largest consumer exchange in the US. And it's from a market cap perspective, they're very they're much much closer than they were, you know, 6 years ago. ago. Yeah. And so that's waking up people to the idea that um, bank software is both an opportunity but also usually very high quality, durable revenue with great retention, all this other sort of stuff. Um, and so that's another kind of boring, broken area that I feel like a lot more people are, are interested in than used to. Be. I get that. I, I don't know why there's always those cycles in every industry, you know, where it's like consumer looks really sexy in the beginning and, you know, companies launch and valuations and B2B ends up winning the day, you know, like um, what, what's your feeling on, big tech moving into, into finance. That was a conversation we were having a lot a year ago. Um, obviously different players are taking different approaches on it. Some have abandoned, some are doubling down. Like, I guess, I guess it may, it's a hard question to, to answer, yeah. including all of them. Cause they all have different strategies, but like, what's your feeling there? Yeah. It's first of all, like let's define big tech. I think talk about Google and Facebook are probably the two most Google, Facebook, and Apple. Apple. Um, relevant. And pretty much all their movements into um, finance have been consumer oriented, right? There's not as much business oriented, although there is some of that. Um, And then let's like replay some of the history. So the TLDR is they have tried to move into it multiple times and it has kind of bit them in the ass several different times. Yes, they will continue to do it. Yes, around the edges, especially around consumer payments, if they figure out something there, Payments is really just messaging mm-hmm. and what matters is having huge amounts of distribution. Mm-hmm. And so like, especially for consumer payments, that's like one of the big areas to watch for, for big tech. However, guess who else is like watching big techs every single move, every single regulator right now, yep. right? Especially Lena Khan at the FCC. And so it's just going to be very, they, they may have missed their window uh, because of the regulatory, you know, engagement, especially via big tech. So that's what I would say is mainly consumer regulators might even keep them at bay in the consumer world. But I think it's interesting to talk about the history too. So when I was working at Syndio and call it 2015 in mortgage, Google launched Google Mortgage. Do you remember Google Mortgage? I do. You you might actually. Product comparison, <laughs> <people> right? <laughs> <It was> product <laughs> yeah. comparison site. Yeah. It was like kayak for mortgages. And we're like, yeah. shit, 
we're dead, right? Like <laughs> Google's going to do kayak for mortgages. Um, and that was one component. This was just like kayak, like they weren't going to do any of the fulfillment, so to speak. It was just like find the quotes and then ship you over to someone mm-hmm. else. So we still could have existed, but now it's like, oh crap. That was actually the second time they'd launched Google Mortgage. They had launched it and killed it before. Uh, and the second time they launched it, they killed it again. Um, I don't know exactly why they killed it. Some of the speculation, well, first of all, Google like builds and launches and then kills a bunch of things. things, That that just happens and there might not be a good reason. One of the potential reasons that some people mentioned at the time was you actually don't want a price comparison site for mortgage if you're an AdWords business, because how do you get people to bid lots of money if the thing that moves you to the top of the results is the lowest rate? (laughs) They stop paying you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. So you're like, oh, uh, whereas, you know, flights, that's different. You can get like a fixed amount. It's, it's like a very different kind of experience, mm-hmm. right? Oh, it's also very complicated to build this out well. So one of the kind of insinuations was potentially, oh, this is, this is bad for business to do mortgage price comparison. And so they ended up killing it. Uh, and then you can talk through a litany of other financial projects that Google has started or stopped. They used to have three or four different finance wallets. Now I I think, and I, I forget because I just have trouble keeping track. I think it's just called Wallet now. Yeah, they consolidated they, them. Yeah, so they, they've done that. They had Google they jettisoned, Plex. They jettisoned, yeah, Plex, exactly. Yeah, Plex was kind of cool. It was basically, um, you know, under the hood, they're kind of six bank accounts. Your funds can be swept around. By the way, that's the exact same thing that Wealthfront and SoFi and other folks have been doing for years, even mm-hmm. either via direct bank relationships or you can de- partner with one of the deposit networks like Stone Castle, Camber, um, I think TDS, Total Deposit Solutions is who Wealthfront was and probably still is using. So they were like, which is fine. When you have distribution, you can be late to the game. But they they showed up, did that. Um, they partnered with Stanford Federal Credit Union, some other folks, and they shut it down. I think I, it didn't take them that long to end up shutting it down. It might, maybe it's still running and they haven't fully shut it down. You You might know where it is right now. Uh, they did the, the team. Much of the team left, I think, and um, they did call it off. I don't know if it's shut down completely, but I think they've they've called off yeah. the the project. Yeah, yeah. And then Facebook, they've Facebook has done, I think, a better job, but they probably get the most regulatory ire. So that's yeah. probably the main <laughs> the main takeaway there. Um, Apple has done some pretty cool and interesting things, but their card program has struggled recently, right? Mm-hmm. And Goldman, who's behind the card, has realized that doing consumer oriented stuff. Big banks discover this again and again, as do people in many ecosystems. All the volumes end up being B2B. Consumer has a lot of regulatory stuff. It, the concerns around it take place in the court of public opinion, and so you get a lot more pushback. They had like high charge-off rates. So anyways, that's, that has not been a runaway success by any means. And so what does that mean? I don't know exactly, but it's definitely not, you know, going to replace everyone's credit card anytime soon. So all of that is to say there's a long history of big tech, mostly in consumer and mostly not working. I'm curious, what would you say is this thing that has helped the most? I mean, Apple wallet and like tokenization of cards, like has been interesting and helpful. Um, they actually do charge a little bit more than that on top of the existing um, networks, but that's probably like the biggest it's just the, the wallets I, I, for the phones. I think big tech, I mean, maybe getting to this point as well, but um, you didn't include Amazon, which I thought was telling. Like, I think I think their ecosystem plays as opposed to like going outside the ecosystem. That's where I think they're most effective and where they'll probably be yeah. the most successful. Um, but that doesn't necessarily make them a threat for generic vanilla services, you know? Totally. Like, for example, Amazon Pay is probably bigger than 
or as big as any neobank. But yeah, to your point, that doesn't give them license to go and do other stuff. Um, they don't need to. Right. The ecosystem's well. so big, you could just play in there. And same yeah. thing. I mean, if you look at Shopify now and. Um, and does Amazon Pay want to put their button on Walmart's website? Does Walmart want to let Amazon do that? No, <laughs> they don't want that to happen. We got to include uh, Walmart now in big tech. So I do think, yeah. I, and this is where, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Walmart was one of the first players to go after a banking license in the early 2000s. And then right, that the fell industrial, the industrial charter or something. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, and now they're back in Walmart's company. It's a JV in which they are a minority owner. So it gets referred to as Walmart's thing. And I, I refer to it as that, but technically it, it's not. Um, it it's has, Rivet's thing? Yeah. It's, it's kind of more Rivet's thing <laughs> than maybe anyone <laughs> The else. investors always win. <laughs> That's right. In part because of the regulatory concerns, Amazon can't do it internally. You need a more north. So anyways, yeah. So investors sometimes um, figure out clever things. But yeah, I think they're actually one of the most interesting people to watch because they have a huge footprint. They've got over 2 million employees. They're the, I think they're the second largest employer in the world, public or private, after the Pentagon. Wow. And then I think three is the PLA, the People's Liberation Army of China. Um, <laughs> and so like, they're really big. That's just their employees. <laughs> Uh, and then they interact with, I can't remember how many tens of millions of Americans on a roughly weekly and definitely many tens of millions on a monthly basis. So they just have a huge footprint for potential distribution uh, in a fair number of interesting ways. And because they are a minority owner in the joint venture, the executive team has both the mandate and the incentives to actually pursue being a very strong independent brand and offering. And the brand is actually one um, or one finance. Uh, and they have some very interesting underlying architecture that allows them to behave very modularly, um, which affords interesting ways of potentially acquiring consumers through the Walmart um, ecosystem. For example, you could get a digital gift card that you scan, drops you into a lightweight mobile, uh, not even mobile app so much as web app on your your um, mobile browser and it looks like just a gift card. And then you can like click a button or two and realize, Oh my God, I can actually like basically just open a bank and then that can become a So like, there's some very interesting things because of how they've actually built the infrastructure behind it. Um, so I think Walmart is actually probably the most interesting player to watch. Um, and part of the most interesting because it's new again, and therefore it hasn't had long enough to, <laughs> right. to not the work out. Holds um, in it, and they have a big part of the Marcus team. Yeah. And again, it's also a regulatory thing. Like who, who is Lena Khan going to get people fired up about right now? It's not, it's going to be going after Facebook and Google and Apple. It's not going to be going after one, right? They'll, they'll probably call it Walmart's thing. So that's probably the biggest existential risk is trying to just disassociate <laughs> one, the brand from Walmart. From Walmart. Uh, but, but you can do that. You can be like, all right, we now own less of it. Right. So there are ways you can, you can figure that out too. Rex, I have one last question for you in the remaining time. What's your favorite um, big fintech? Oh, my favorite big fintech. Um, this is hard. People often ask me, like, what do you, I think about like this fintech in the public markets? And I'm like, I spend all of my time looking at early stage companies. And when you get to like big late stage stuff, it's really about reading the annual reports, diving into the financials benchmarking against uh, competitors. Um, also, as an investor, it's really hard because anyone can hit the buy button. And so there's all this smart money out there making decisions. So it's very hard to like 
figure out who's doing the best and why. So maybe not one that you would invest in because obviously yeah. that's a different calculation, but like maybe maybe strategically or the ecosystem that's built. Yeah, it's a, one of my best way of just kind of paying attention. So I'll answer this indirectly first and then directly to follow up. So one of my best ways and favorite ways of following this is every time um, a new large fintech company goes public, I love reading the initiating coverage mm-hmm. reports from various analysts, especially... Yeah. Credit Suisse is one of my favorite groups um, to follow. So um, Nick and Tim from Credit Suisse wrote an initiating coverage report on Bill.com recently, and that was a really great read. So it does a bunch of things. It teaches you about the company, but also about the broader ecosystem and what a business model can look like in some sort of some sort of space, right? And so I think for Bill.com. Bill.com is a very interesting business because they are doing SMB payments. SMB payments uh, are one of the highest margin areas of the payment ecosystem, but they're very difficult to serve because how do you get distribution to very small businesses that may look more like a consumer almost than a business? Mm -hmm. So you have a a distribution problem, but the flip side of the coin is great margin when you get there. So Bill.com has a kind of networks effects driven business where as other people start using your invoicing platform, it naturally starts to draw mm-hmm. in other folks, right? And Makes they sense. both get to charge really high quality, get really high quality subscription revenue where they charge you a monthly fee to use the platform, but they are also starting to build out their ability to do take rates. So like the TLDR for Bill.com is great company that has, has been growing fast. And as it grows, it's actually continued to grow faster over time, which is usually one way you can kind of see network effects. So like, that's pretty cool. And then you're like, well, how big's the market? And it's like 1% market penetration is kind of where they are, right? Because there's a lot of small businesses and it just takes a long time to flow into a lot of them. And I think the, the takeaway there is they measure their market as about 25 trillion in payment volumes. And they've got about 250 billion of it flowing through their platform. You can fact check me on that, see if I remember correctly, something like that. And then if you look like, okay, what does the business model over time look like? Well, right now there, remember it's, it's subscription revenue, I think is over 50% of their revenue, but they can start layering on take rates. So if you were to kind of just put their total revenue over their total kind of volume flowing through the platform, their effective take rate, so to speak, is like 1.7 or 1.8 bips. So like, what do you have to believe for Bill to continue to grow is that they can get modest increases in their market penetration and that they can build out other services that allow them to increase their effective take rate from like 1.8 bips to three bips. And like, is that doable? And I would say like, yes, they can get more market penetration Yes, they can actually build out new products that allow them to get higher levels of monetization per dollar moved through their platform. But we talked about OPI, like embedding lending and credit and other services like that is definitely one of those areas. So I would say they're a very interesting company to watch, but even more so than them being an interesting company, like if you want to learn about companies, I think the best place to go to is try and find initiating coverage reports. By the way, even if they're five years old, still great to read um, because it kind of sets your understanding at a point in time, and then you can kind of see where they are today, which is um, valuable in its own right. And so I would say they're a very interesting company, um, but also that's just a great, great thing to dive into to read, to understand kind of that SMB payment space more broadly. Rex, thanks for joining us on Tearsheet Podcast today. It's uh, been great talking to you. 